but Labour is back. We're not creative enough. Not this is just the start. I want many more days like this. Seventeen years of hurt never stopped us dreaming. I know that was then, but it could be again. Labour's coming home. Labour is coming home. Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast, which as you may have noticed, we're recording in the midst of a certain amount of football frenzy, with the England men's team having reached the final of a major tournament for the first time since the World Cup in 1966. And as you heard in our introduction, Sir Keir Starmer has shamelessly got in on the act by quoting the lyrics of Three Lions to celebrate Labour's unexpected victory in the Batley and Spen by-election last week. Labour's coming home, he proclaimed, Um, but of course he wasn't the first Labour leader to do that, as you heard as well, 25 years ago, in the wake of the Euro 96 tournament, Tony Blair also made that declaration, plagiarising the lyrics even more blatantly for his 1996 party conference speech, which turned out to be his last as leader of the opposition before he swept to power at the following year's general election. Uh, In that speech, Blair spoke of 17 years of hurt in a reminder that Labour's path back to victory was long and difficult. Of course, it was 18 years by the time the election came. And whilst he was the one who finally did it and got them across the line, his achievement owed a significant amount to the work of the leaders who preceded him, and especially to Neil Kinnock, who spent nine years in the job fighting to modernise the Labour Party and to make it a credible opposition uh, and an alternative government in waiting. My guest this episode is someone who worked closely with both Kinnock and Blair across several decades. Charles Clark is best known today as a former Home Secretary in the new Labour government, but in the 1980s and early 90s he was a key advisor to Neil Kinnock, eventually becoming his Chief of Staff. I spoke to him earlier this week about his time in the job Great. Well, thanks very much indeed for um, joining us on the on the podcast, uh, Charles. I thought um, we'd start right back at the beginning. Um, I believe you started working for Neil in um, the early eighties before he was leader. Uh, you were his research assistant um, when he was. Yeah. <clears throat> what happened was Jim Callahan appointed Neil as the shadow education secretary after the nineteen seventy nine election defeat, and um, which was of itself relatively surprising. Neil was clearly from the left of the party. And Jim picked him out to, uh, nevertheless, in those days when it was uh, um, the shadow cabinet was appointed by the leader rather than elected. Um, Neil would then look for a research assistant, uh, what was then called a chocolate soldier, funded by the Roundtree Foundation, uh, the equivalent of the modern day SPAD. And there was enough money for uh, half a person to be appointed to all the shadow cabinet roles. So he took a <coughs> I did know him from the mid 70s, but uh, I didn't know him particularly well. But um, uh, Bert Clough, who was the Labour Party's education staffer, uh, who was to- who Neil asked for advice, suggested he might like to uh, see if I would be ready to do it because I'd been involved in the party on the party's education subcommittee in the mid 1970s. Uh, which was an institution which existed then and didn't really exist now. 
uh, when I was president of the National Union of Students. So I'd been a member of that Labour Party group and Bert knew me from that and recommended me to Neil and Neil asked me and I was delighted obviously to get the chance to do that. Mm. And you were working mainly on um, on his education brief, so in his shadow no, cabinet role. Almost entirely, yes. Mm. Um, and you talk about the the roundtree money of sort of chocolate soldiers. I mean, what what level of support was there for shadow cabinet members at, at that time? Um, I think um, it's it's possibly easier to sort of conceptualise the Conservative Party in opposition because um, the Conservative Research Department is quite a um, famous institution in its own right and, and has sort of um, a, a really well-established way of operating that you have desk officers there um, uh, based on um, on the different portfolios for each shadow uh, minister. But the Labour Party operates quite differently and you, you mentioned Bert Clough there as being the sort of education policy guy but um, there wasn't an awful lot of um, support for those kind of roles um, how did it work between sort of the Labour Party resources and um, sort of taxpayer resources from short money? Well, the Labour Party um, at that point uh, did have a research department. It had somebody in the research department that covered the main uh, subject responsibilities. Bert was an employee of the Labour Party, uh, accountable to the director of research, who, as I think was then Jeff Bish. And um, he was uh, appointed to that. Um, on the other side, I can't remember when short money started. Uh, there was something called short money named after Ted Short. Mm. And it was appointed when he was a minister in, I think, probably... It was the late 70s, so from, from about 76 onwards. Um, and so there must have been some money there to support the leader of the opposition at that time. But there wasn't enough money to support uh, individual shadow cabinet members, researchers. And that's where the Rantry Foundation came in. And it funded to the level of, as I say, half a salary, essentially, salary for two and a half days a week. And that was the total money that there was available. And so each shadow cabinet member appointed uh, a half person for that. And um, that was a group that met. We talked together a lot. Uh, and we worked with Bert and the, his equivalents in the Labour Party Research Department. Uh, but it was essentially for helping the um, <clears throat> shadow cabinet member both do their parliamentary job in terms of shadowing the, the Ministry of the Day and in terms of developing policy. And in fact, Neil decided to take develop policy in a number of different fields, uh, private education, uh, private schools, um, 16 to 19 education and universities. And uh, that, we published, I think, three documents was during that period between 1981 and 1983. And the major bill he was doing was on special education, which was actually quite a complex piece of legislation, uh, which I helped him on. <coughs> and it was quite a, a difficult period um, for the Labour Party um, at, at that time, leading up to 1983. We had the um, the breakaway um, of, of the SDP. Um, and I think we sometimes forget, looking back, that it was... It was really a, an existential crisis for for the party that it, it it did look possible with the the polls the way they were were in the run up to that election that there might have been um, a threat to Labour's position as the second party. Um, how challenging was it to to be sort of operating in that environment where you're trying to develop policy for essentially a future Labour government when you're in a position where clearly the party is um, you know is having great difficulties. Um, in itself, but is also just fighting to um, to maintain that position as the official opposition. 
Absolutely. Uh, well, there were two enormous factors other than the split of the SDP that you mentioned. Uh, one was the um, uh, fact that it was Margaret Thatcher had been elected the first time, and though she was wobbling a bit, uh, there still was, uh, until the Falklands War, uh, there was still a likelihood that she in power could drive forward, which she in fact succeeded in doing in 1983. And secondly, uh, the divisions within the party were very great. Uh, Michael Foote uh, was the leader. Neil had organised his campaign for the leadership of the Labour Party, something I think he later regretted in terms of uh, the burdens it placed upon Michael. Um, and the Tony Benn movement was in full flow. We had the deputy leadership election between uh, Dennis Healy and Tony Benn, uh, and a whole set of issues that followed in that period. Uh, which made politics extremely difficult. Neil was a member of the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party. In those days, um, there were prominent MPs were on the NEC of the Labour Party, and so had to be engaged in all those big existential, as you rightly say, issues facing the party at that time. And I helped him with some of that too. But my work was primarily on education. And in terms of, of policy, as I say, there are differences, quite clear differences between the way the Labour Party operates, even today, I think, and to the way that the Conservative Party does um, in opposition. Um, there are other factors to consider other than sort of what the leader and the shadow spokesperson might want mm. um, in terms of policy making, because I think the Labour Party takes far more seriously the idea that um, the party conference is sovereign and, um, and, and policy has to be um, approved. On a sort of logistical basis, when you're trying to develop policy in a portfolio in opposition and you've got that environment, and as you say, you had Tony Benn and his acolytes um, trying to seize control of those elements of the machinery, um, how did you navigate that from a practical perspective? Well, the most effective and important thing was to recognise the party conference would ultimately decide. And we developed a close relationship with the Socialist Education Association, which was the um, party affiliated organisation dealing with education. Its president was Caroline Ben, Tony's wife, who was a distinguished educationist in her own right. Um, and we thought if we work well with them, that would assist us in terms of developing party uh, policy across the party as a whole. And indeed it did. And of course, we talked to the other trade unions as well. Important to appreciate that the main trade unions in education were not members of the Labour Party because they were public sector trade unions, unlike policy in, say, transport, for example, with the National Union of Railwomen and of nationalising the railways. That issue didn't arise in the same way in the Labour Party. But uh, nevertheless, it was important to try and get a broad consensus for the policies that we were putting forward. Um, both because of the public uh, presentation of what we did, but very importantly because of getting the policies agreed by the party as a whole. Mm. And you talk about communicating them to the, to the public. Um, one of the many frustrations that seems um, consistent across all periods of opposition is is just that struggle to be heard. Um, and that's a problem for the leader of the party, but even more so for shadow cabinet members. Um, how difficult did you find that to get any traction on, on the um, policy you were putting forward? Well, it was very difficult um, for the reasons you say. Um, 
but uh, and I think it's important. I mean, it applies now, but it's certainly true then. The more outrageous the thing you said, the more likely you were to get publicity, and that will. And some people were of the view that all publicity was good publicity. Uh, that wasn't Neil's view. He wanted to get publicity for what we thought was strong and good policies in what we were trying to do. Um, at that point, there was a slightly easier journalistic position because there was a group of education correspondents of the national newspapers, um, which went round uh, in, a, in, a, in a circle. And there was probably that stage about seven or eight of them. Uh, and if you had relations with that group, you had a good chance of the education correspondents of the papers covering what you're doing, as opposed to the political correspondents of the papers covering what you're doing. That's much less true these days. But there was an education group, which I knew well, from my time at the National Union of Students, where all our, almost all our coverage was through the education group. So our policy to get covered was to try and have good and interesting policy, but also to discuss it with the education lobby. Mm. And as we get towards the 83 election, there's the, the famous um, quote from uh, Gerald Kaufman about the longest suicide note in, in history and the I think the most important word there is longest um, because as as Neil tells it there was a very clear reason why the manifesto was as long and detailed as it was um, uh, which was that it was essentially the program for government that was adopted at the party conference um, and as as you say recognizing the fact that the conference makes policy um, presumably that meant that the policy that went into the manifesto was policy that you were content with um, but in other areas perhaps um, the fact that all of that went in um, as it was agreed at conference perhaps was, was something of a problem is that is that your recollection as well that the reason it, it, it was so long was because they didn't want to have to have the fight of, of editing down what had already been agreed yes broadly speaking uh, because trying to get it down to a shorter version uh, would have involved a series of political conflicts, which it was by no means clear that uh, the leader, Michael Foote, or, and people who thought looked like him would be able to win those battles. And so they, there's a possibility of them being fruitless battles, um, which simply um, reinforced the policy that was already set out there. Um, it was less clear as a problem in our field, education, than it was in some other fields. The, the list of things that were preoccupations which uh, Neela's leader was, was seeking to deal with, attitude to the European Union, unilateral nuclear disarmament, council house sales, uh, renationalizations, whole string of policies, weren't actually in our education area. And so we were less uh, tested by this than some other colleagues were. And then, of course, the uh, election itself um, took place. And um, although it was a um, substantial uh, landslide defeat uh, for the Labour Party, as, as I said earlier, there was a question about whether Labour would even hang on to second place. I think it was a realistic um, uh, threat before that election, that um, certainly uh, maybe a year out, the polls were showing the SDP running um, ahead of the Labour Party, and indeed, in some polls, ahead of the Conservative Party as well. Um, so, in some ways, it's all relative. It perhaps wasn't as disastrous as it could have been, but it was very, very close um, to, to to being that that disastrous. Um, were you surprised? Were you shocked? Do you, do you remember the, the the feeling, sort of from from the sort of inside of the sort of staffer perspective? As, uh, as I, I certainly wasn't surprised. I thought we were making a very poor fist of it. 
And after the Falklands War, Margaret Thatcher had a great deal of popular support. There was a by-election in, I think it was South End, where we did quite well before the war, before the Falklands War. And I think in other circumstances, we might have been in the position if our party was in the right place to have been more challenging. But the fact that as a party, we simply weren't engaging properly with the electorate. And as a party, um, we didn't have an alternative that was coherent uh, to put forward, um, meant that it was really an easy election for Margaret Thatcher. And, and just on the point about the Falklands, um, it's, it certainly is a, a turning point in, in, in her story and the story of the Conservative government, but um, it, it wasn't perhaps the only factor. I mean, um, setting aside the, um, the problems that the, part, the Labour Party was having, um, there were some signs of economic recovery and, and things like that which were starting to go the, the, right, the right way. It's, it's not quite as, as straightforward as the Falklands, is it? I agree completely. There's a whole set of factors in place, but the Falklands was the, and why I mentioned it, was the dramatisation of mm. Margaret Thatcher as a national leader in those circumstances. And there's no doubt that that uh, helped deal with the situation. Obviously, the Labour Party had tried from the outset under Michael Foote's leadership uh, to, broadly speaking, be supportive of the government and the Falklands and not to oppose it. But that, in turn, uh, caused its own uh, tensions uh, within the Labour Party. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think you're right that the uh, it's sort of it's an easy narrative, but also it's one that strengthened her um, her own conviction, I suppose, as well. Um, certainly, sort of bolstered her own self belief. Um, and in the aftermath of that election, um, Neil stands for for the leadership. Do you remember the, the the sort of thought process that went into that? Was it always clear? I mean, he made a very famous speech, of course, during the during the eighty three campaign, which um, uh, is is remembered even even today. Um, do you think that it was quite clear before the election that he was? Uh, likely to stand as a candidate? And was that something that was clearly in his mind? I would say so. Um, he, uh, he got very, very frustrated at the inability of what would now be called the soft left to articulate a future for the Labour Party. And he felt he would be able to do that. Um, though he was a big supporter of Michael Foots, uh, he didn't believe Michael had succeeded in doing that and felt that if the party was to be um, restored to the possibility of getting uh, electoral success, that would best be done from the soft left, and he was the person he thought who could do that. And so I don't think it was uh, really ever a doubt in his mind that he would be um, a candidate. Uh, he travelled around the country a great deal it, during the 79-83 Parliament. He had a lot of support across the country from a large number of people. He was a well-regarded national figure, and so he was always likely to be a candidate, in my view. The big thing that happened, of course, in the 83 general election was that Tony Benn was defeated in his Bristol seat, and so he couldn't be a candidate for the leadership of the Labour Party. Uh, and that being the case, not being the case, it might have been a very different story, the whole process. Um, and uh, so that happened, and then Roy came in, Roy Hattersley, I think it also been fairly clear that he would come in. And so there was some discussion beforehand about the uh, dream ticket idea, the idea that both candidates would say that uh, they would support the other as deputy leader in, in the context. And that was a slightly, um, not torrid, it was a difficult process to get agreement all around to that being the case. But I think the concept of the, 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 the dream ticket 
was um, an important part of the idea of bringing the party together again. It's perhaps difficult at this distance to recall just how divided and uh, the party was and just how divisive much of the debates within the party had been. And the desire that we had to come together again uh, was seen as a very, very important part of that process, whether Neil won or Roy won. Though, in fact, the early decision of trade unions under the influence of uh, Clive Jenkins to uh, support Neil always made it likely that Neil would win uh, through that election. And as it went forward, uh, that indeed became the case. And he got very good support um, in the party in, at large and uh, in Parliament as well. Mm. Yeah, I was just looking at the uh, the voting figures and actually in, in terms of the CLP um vote he he got uh 91 of, of the vote it was a very resounding victory and in, in the overall vote um it came out uh, across the electoral college at, at 71 um percent i mean so so he he won a resounding victory do you think that was important for the party to have that decisive victory for a leader well i think it was it did cause some issues because of the shadow cabinet who were then elected. I can't remember quite how the election of shadow cabinet process happened, because I don't think he'd been elected when he became shadow education spokesman. But the shadow cabinet he had to deal with in 1983 was elected. I think I'm right in saying none of the elected shadow cabinet members had voted for Neil as leader. Right. So he had the issue. Uh, they mostly voted for Roy, but some had voted for uh, Eric Heffer, the uh, leftist candidate, the Ben Place person. Um, and uh, so the challenge Neil then had of assembling a shadow cabinet which was coherent and un uniting was difficult. But on the other hand, the fact there was no uh, argument about the outcome of the election and it had been a decisive win in all sections of the Electoral College made it easier for Neil to be able to tackle those problems. And your uh, your role working for him um, at that point, um, I, I think you you weren't um, yet sort of chief of staff. I think that came slightly later. What was your role initially in um, in his uh, sort of leader's office? Essentially, um, Labour Party work. I mean, Neil appointed initially five principal people at the Labour Party conference. He was elected leader. Dick Clements, who as you uh, rightly said, had been uh, Michael Foote's uh, chief of office, and he became Neil's chief of office. Myself, John Reid, uh, Patricia Hewitt, and Henry Newberger, who was uh, the economist, sadly died um, really quite a long time ago now. Um, and as well, Sue Nye, who'd worked for um, for, for Michael Foote. Um, and so we that was the team that was initially appointed. And it was... Um, um, really, uh, John and, uh, uh, and Henry were dealing with the policy side, and then other people were brought in, John Eatwell, um, uh, Jan Royal, uh, and so on, uh, over time as we gradually strengthened the office. Mm. And what was your initial impression of the, the setup? Um, I have to say, I, I've um, I have the benefit of some archive material that I've, um, I've, I've been looking at um, from slightly later on, which includes a memo that you wrote, I think, in 1985, um, when the sort of the structure of the office changed a little bit. Um, and you took on more of a, a coordinating role um, as sort of de facto chief of staff. But um, in that, 
um, you make some observations about the way that the, the office has um, has been set up. Um, do, did you feel perhaps it was less than um, less than optimal the way it was was, was running between eighty three and and, and and eighty five? Well, I don't know if I, I, you've got the advantage of me and you've seen what I wrote at the time and I haven't and I don't remember it. Um, less than optimal, well, certainly, um, most things are less than optimal. Um, and uh, But I don't recall um, what I wrote then and what the feelings were. Um, we needed strength in certain areas and I mentioned the taking on of John Eatwell on the economic side. We particularly felt that we felt we needed more help on the um, uh, speech writing side, so John Newbegin came into the office. Um, more policy research, Kay Andrews came into the office. There's a, a set of ways of trying to strengthen it and making sure all of our bases were covered. We brought Hilary Kaufman on from um, uh, Michael Foote's office to help with the press, so Patricia and Patricia Hewitt and, uh, and Hilary were dealing with the press. Um, anyway, but I, I, I don't recall what I said at the time. Um, but uh, I certainly felt we needed to improve our performance, uh, as we did across the party as a whole. It was about that time that we um, got Peter Mandelson in as the head of PR for the Labour Party. He worked for the Labour Party, not for our office. Um, and uh, then uh, helped Peter get in Philip Gould from the uh, Shadow Communications Agency. We were gradually just trying to strengthen our capacity to be able to mount um, effective operations on the three fronts that we needed to. We always had to, A, be thinking what the policies were and trying to get the policies agreed by the party conference, B, getting our organisation in place. And there are a lot of challenges to that, for example, the militant tendency, for example, the issues, uh, some of the issues on race uh, and winning by-elections. And then thirdly, we had to get our presentation right, which is where the Red Rose came from, and Peter contributed to that. We had a set of different things we were trying to do, and we weren't doing all of them as effectively as we needed to. And that would, would I think, be the uh, source of what I wrote then. But as I say, maybe there's uh, language there that you can excite me with. Yes, it's rather unfair of me to, to, to throw that in there. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a, a very good um, memo sort of setting out how the office needs sort of certain um capabilities and um and just setting out the the roles that are required and as you say there are those challenges um to meet in terms of research ensuring the leader is briefed managing the diary and it's it's a very good from 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 my perspective it's actually a very good um way of breaking down what does the leader of the opposition's office need to do and it covers of course all of those issues um from kind of policy and um party management through to um just um the sort of logistics of um, of making sure that the leader is is properly briefed and is able to get from A, a to B, um, but it is always a small office compared to kind of the hundreds of people that, um, that a prime minister has at their disposal to organise their office. Um, and when you're dealing with essentially the same issues that a prime minister is dealing with, it's quite an unfair fight, isn't it? I mean, you've got a, a press who are essentially looking for. Um, the opposition's response to every um, major issue of the day, and you're trying to do that from a position of of much, uh, you know, of much less strength. You don't have the the people there to um, to do all of it. So, did, did you did you feel that it was kind of a a, a difficult um, 
you know imbalanced fight there that you're you're having to sort of um fight fires within the party you're having to sort of deal with trying to make progress positively on the things that you want to do but also having to react all the time um did, did you have a sense of that very much it was always very difficult on the other hand i personally preferred a relatively small office to the much larger operations which after tony became leader of the opposition became characteristic uh, and exist to this day of much larger and better paid people um, and i thought we gained something from the relative smallness uh, of the office though as i said verbally and you've just confirmed is what i was writing there were a number of resources that we needed to have to deal with the various issues that came along um, but i didn't uh, i don't think i saw it really as us against the government in quite that sense we, the, the amount of money, the short money uh, that was available was always less than we needed. Um, and that was a con continuing factor. Um, but uh, I never felt myself that we should be doubling, trebling the number of people that we had, because actually one of the challenges of political management, if you've got a large operation, and you can see it today in some circumstances, it's just different people talking uh, to the media and others in a way which it's very difficult to keep hold of. Mm. There is an argument, I suppose, from, from what you said there, that, that the job of opposition is different to that of government. You're not running the country. Mm -hmm. um, you're not having to uh, deal with uh, some of the practical issues that, that, that running a government um, requires. You are essentially um, just deciding what to say or what to... Um, um, what to uh, develop as policy so it is a different job and and do you think that being more nimble as an opposition is a potential advantage that you lose if you over sort of bureaucratize it i do think that and, and, and i was not in favor of making it very large in that kind of way um, and i think it's a way that politics has developed which isn't particularly helpful the increased sizes of what happens and you're quite right when you say we're not running the country um, on the other hand, there's a lot of basic stuff that we, you need to do on any kind of briefing. If you just take, I don't know, the leader of the opposition's response to the budget, for example, which is done on spec immediately without prior notice of what's in the budget, the economic strength that you have to have in the office is significant and needs to be there in a, in a, in a big way. Um, and so there are, there's an irreducible minimum, really, of what you need uh, if you're meeting um, a string of uh, overseas leaders who are significant then you need to do it neil went to moscow two or three times as chenenko and andropov died to the funerals and making sure you're uh, fully equipped to be able to know the ins and outs of all that that's not a governmental function but it's nevertheless quite an important function of opposition that you can play those kind of roles so um uh, I, I, I agree 100% with your nimbleness point, but that doesn't allow you to shrink right down to a very small position. And uh, it's not just about words, it's about briefing for that wide range of different circumstances. Mm. Um, and you've touched there on international visits, which is quite an important and high profile element of um, a leader's role. It's something which um, is often used as something of a uh, marker of, of whether they are taken um, seriously abroad, it's whether they can be seen as an international statesperson. Um, and um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but actually there were a couple of visits, and um, this is a, 
uh, a tale which um, I, I think is, um, is is a source of constant fascination to me. But the two visits to uh, to Washington um, that, that Neil um, uh, undertook as leader, there was an early one which most people forget about uh, in I think 1984, mm. um, where um, he he went to to the states. And then there's the more famous one in 1987, um, on the eve of the the election. Um, when you're considering whether to do those visits, um, clearly Ronald Reagan there was um, was a, an ally of Margaret Thatcher um, and somebody who clearly was not going to be uh, see eye to eye with um, with Neil or any Labour leader at that time. Um, how much discussion was there about whether it was worth doing at all, and what was the objective of uh, certainly the first visit well there was a lot of discussion because <clears throat> if exactly the issues you say you've got to decide whether it's a good idea whether it's not a good idea at that stage there was a convention in the major countries that if there was a visit uh, to um, a country by the leader of the opposition then normally the head of government would meet them so Ronald Reagan in that case or Helmut Kohl or uh, Francois Mitterrand would meet them uh, and equally, if they came to the UK, it would be expected that there'd be a place for them on the um, the programme, a uh, place for the leader of the opposition on the programme of the people coming uh, to the uh, UK. Uh, I'm not sure if that convention is still in place fully, particularly after the Donald Trump period, but uh, it was seen as a major Security Council member and so on. It was important that both sides of politics should get um, uh, heard in that process. Um, but then there, there is then the question of whether it's desirable from our point of view to go and visit countries and talk to people. Um, I always took the view it was desirable to do that and that it would be beneficial for us both to understand how other people saw things and also uh, to get across what our view was on the central issues of the moment. Because the British electorate always wants to feel that a potential prime minister has got the capacity to... Uh, represent the country in a range of different meetings of that kind. So I was always in favour of those things. We did less um, uh, high-level visits of different kinds, uh, for example, to India, uh, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa, and so on, to get across different themes of what we were dealing with. Um, but fundamentally, Labour was, uh, and is, I think, a very internationalist party, and so we saw it as important to do those things. And the idea that if we thought uh, there'd be bad publicity from a trip, for example, through meeting Ronald Reagan. We should therefore desist. We thought that would be a worse position than if we'd gone and done what we were trying to do. In fact, the Americans on the second trip uh, had a more proactive position to try and assist Margaret Thatcher in those circumstances uh, than was conventional in those types of events. And that was what was reflected in the media of the time. Mm. Yes, I mean, it is certainly clear that there was a degree of collusion going on um, between um, certainly the ambassador um, and uh, number 10 in terms of um, how they were going to um, try to observe the, the correct courtesies that the leader of the opposition was um, entitled to um, whilst overseas, but in a way that was, um, was helpful to um to margaret thatcher by ensuring that they were able to brief that um that uh, neil kinnock had been um sort of essentially told off by um by ronald reagan um but 
as you say, there is this. There is. By the way, it didn't happen. Well, it, I was coming on to that. I was coming on to that because it is quite clear as well from the um, from the the files that um, there is a you know the spin that took place afterwards from I think it was the deputy press secretary who. Uh, who briefed it afterwards and I think again without throwing um, um, sort of the, the paperwork at you that you haven't haven't seen I think um, that there is a record of, of you hotly disputing the, what, what actually happened um, versus the, 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 the version that was told to the press um, but as you say it is the case that um, the Foreign Office um, has customarily um, provided support to the leader of the opposition and when leaders are in the UK it is still the convention that there is a um, a, a sort of a call on the leader uh, visiting from the leader of the opposition and all of those things are there but what I find fascinating about that visit in in 87 um, is looking at the American papers uh, if you look at the files from the American side um, it is perfectly clear that um, Reagan and, and his national security advisor and others um, were simply saying to the, the British um, what can we do to help uh, would it be helpful if you know we um, we sort of sent him away with a flea in his ear and so on and I think even looked at whether to reject a, a meeting and uh, you've got all of that those things being recorded in the in the papers that have now been um, released and as you say the, the meeting itself I've actually found there is there is some um, footage of it actually in the um, uh, in the Oval Office um, and the first thing that's um, that's striking about it is that um, uh, I think Reagan uh, mistakes the ambassador for for somebody at, at one point um and um and so you know it's um it's a well-documented visit but as you say the briefing afterwards is what is what created the, the negative headlines and um i mean do you want to characterize how the visit actually went how the meeting itself went oh well i'd simply say it was courteous in the way that these things are there is a difference of opinion um everybody knew that we didn't need a meeting to know there was a difference of opinion between those things Though, in fact, it's interesting to see how uh, Reagan actually dealt with nuclear disarmament at the Reykjavik summit with uh, Gorbachev mm. and the position that he took that was somewhat different from the uh, US uh, foreign policy establishment at Reykjavik. So, I, but I mean, it was a, simply a courteous exchange of views, as I'm sure happened at all his meetings. He spoke from... Uh, uh, cue cards that were there. That was, uh, I imagine, routine as his way of dealing with the range of meetings he has to deal with in any given day. Um, and it was a, a courteous exchange. It didn't bring any illumination. Uh, but on the other hand, it indicated an ability of both sides to talk to the other in a reasonably civilised way. And I thought that was the real thing that came out of it. But as you say, the briefing immediately afterwards didn't convey that at all. Mm. And I think it's led to a um, something of a, a nervousness ever since uh, when a leader of the opposition is uh, considering whether to go to Washington, if there is any prospect that they're going to be subject to, to the same kind of treatment, um, they, they do tend to think twice. Um, I know Michael Howard didn't go to Washington, although he was only leader for 18 months, and so it was quite difficult to fit fit the time in but certainly um i mentioned this to um kate fall on our, our previous program when um she was someone who, who was quite close to michael howard um but there was a clear difference of of a view there and the briefing from the white house at that time was don't bother coming because michael howard had been seen to be unhelpful uh to, to blair and to bush um and so indeed he didn't go despite being 
quite an Atlanticist himself and somebody who otherwise would have wanted to do that. Um, there has been this nervousness, and it has entered folklore, um, that there are dangers in doing that, that if you if you go to uh, to Washington to get that that important photo op um, and to be seen as credible, that you run the risk of, of, of doing that. Um, do you think that's something which, um, you know, leaders need to bear in mind? Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn didn't, didn't go to, to Washington, and neither did Michael Foote. Well, bear in mind, yes, but no more than bear in mind. At the end of the day, if you're the British Prime Minister, uh, then you have to have relations with America, whatever you think of what's going on. And you have to have relations with Russia, whatever you think of what's going on. And so if you aspire to be the British Prime Minister, I, you, you can't kind of pretend that these relationships don't exist. They do exist. And it's better to engage with them rather than not. And I'd, I, I'd forgotten that about Michael Howard, but I would have said that was a bad decision by him. Uh, in those circumstances. Uh, perhaps it's a symptom of the um, increased short-termism of uh, media headlines in, in governing the way politicians behave at the moment compared even to that period um, uh, 40 years ago, 35 years ago. Mm. And I, I think it was also true that, um, as, as you alluded to earlier, so in the, in the Trump years, Jeremy Corbyn wanted nothing to do with the US, but of course there was a state visit. Customarily, he would have been invited to both the state banquet and also to, to pay a call on the president, and he, he turned both of those opportunities down. Um, and, you know, that's something which clearly would have played well to uh, many of his supporters. But, but you're, you're of the view, perhaps, that if you'd been advising him, you'd have said, well, go to the meeting and have your exchange of views. Definitely. I mean, I have to say the chance of Jeremy Corbyn accepting my <laughs> advice on any subject you care to mention is extremely low. So I don't think um, my advice would have been heeded in any way. But I would definitely say so. I mean, at the end of the day, if you appear as though you lack the confidence to put your view on key international relationships to those directly involved, then you don't, uh, you don't get the credit. In fact, if you look at it another way around, um, one of Neil's arguments that he used when we should, he argued we should abandon our unilateral nuclear disarmament policy was to say, I've been to uh, Russia, I've been to uh, the United States, I've talked to the leading people about this, and I have come to the view that the pol policy that we've been putting forward simply is not a starter. It gives us no respect, no understanding, and we don't have to operate. And that was a significant part of the argument which carried the day within the Labour Party for changing our position. It was less electorally uh, the case, it, was, it certainly was electorally the case, but it was less that than the idea that we put these policies at the uh, top levels of the countries we're having to deal with, uh, but they'd been treated in, uh, as not serious. And I think uh, that's a, an illustration of the case in domestic political terms having international relationships uh, even with people who you fundamentally disagree with. Mm, indeed um, and going back to the domestic scene um, in the the first couple of years of uh, of Neil's leadership um, there was the the issue of the minor strike um, which uh, dominated um, certainly the headlines but also the sort of political space for a considerable period of time. Um, Neil has said that he feels that the that 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 between that and also some of the um, the issues with Millicent, that robbed him of a significant amount of time in which he could have been making headway with the issues that he later tackled in terms of policy and um, and uh, reformulating uh, the party's position. 
Um, do you think that's true, that it, it just took up an awful lot of bandwidth that, that could have been used for other things? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely central. Um, if you're going to go through major changes in policy, it's best to do it towards the beginning of a parliament rather than at the end of the parliament, uh, simply because if there are divisions, and there's always likely to be divisions in those circumstances, it's better that the divisions have taken place well before the election. But that key early period of the miners' strike, which took a full year out of Neil's leadership, uh, made it very difficult. Now, in the Labour's case, there's the additional factor that if you're going to make policy changes, you really speaking have to get them agreed by the party conference. And a large part of Neil's approach to change, changing the policy was not just to say, okay, here's the change of policy, but to say, we've got to carry that through the party by a set of approaches. And the party was so riven on the minor strike issues and how that went, it made it far, and to a lesser extent militant. Um, and uh, so it made it far more difficult to get a rational discussion about what our policy should be on council house sales, um, trying to reverse that or renationalizing British telecommunications or whatever it might happen to be, because there were other issues that were dominating uh, the party's consideration uh, in a way that made it much more difficult to have a rational discussion on the other questions that we were talking about. Mm. And then moving on to the issue of, of Militant and, of course, the famous um, speech in, uh, in Bournemouth in, eight, in 85, uh, which still to this day I have um, um, students of mine saying that it is um, their, 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 fam their favourite um, political speech of all time. Um, and it has got still, I mean, even to Conservatives, I've heard say this, that it's got that sort of hair on the back of your neck standing up kind of feel to it, that it really was a moment. Um, and it's there's a lot of talk in um, sort of modern politics about a clause four moment, the reference to sort of, you know, a Blair kind of thing of, of, of demonstrating um, that you're changing your party. Um, I think really the, 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 the 85 speech was much more of a moment because I think in what people forget is the clause four moment, most people missed it uh, in, in Blair's speech. Um, it was it was tagged on at the end in not quite clear terms and it wasn't clear until the briefing afterwards what he was talking about. There wasn't actually a conference moment where people reacted to it. Um, in 85, there was a very clear reaction and it was a very clear um, uh, sort of um, opening up of a, a front against that, that sort of entryism into the party. Um, do you think that was something which really... Um, sort of accelerated um that that process was it was it something that was that needed to happen what was your feeling about that about how that worked i certainly think it's something that needed to happen it had been quite a long time in preparation um when we met at the tuc conference in blackpool that year so about three weeks before the labor party conference we met john hamilton the leader of liverpool city council who was in the hands of derek hatton and we had a meeting with him to talk about this issue. And in fact, on the train as we came away from Blackpool to Preston to come down to London was where Neely first used the phrase, you can't play politics with people's jobs. He was going through that and he was so angry about what John was telling him, how the Liverpool City Council had been taken over by the militant people. Uh, and he carried that and he went right through and he was determined to say this cannot be done in the name of Labour. Um, and it should not be done at all, of course, but it certainly can't be done in the name of Labour. And so he uh, was thinking on his language, his wording. It's quite striking. If you look at the recording at Brighton of that speech, 
how Neil sticks literally word for word to the pre-released issue of the speech. He didn't actually change what he was going to say in, in, uh, in response to what was happening in the hall at all. He was just going through and saying this is absolutely directly. It looked like a kind of instinctive speech, but in fact, it was something that was very coherently, very well prepared, because in Neil's view, we couldn't uh, we couldn't be a credible party of government if we allowed things like that to be in, done in the name of Labour. So it had to be challenged very openly. And it wasn't a policy challenge, really. It was a conduct challenge. It was how the Labour Party should conduct itself. There were policy issues in it, of course, but it was about the kind of people that Labour is. And that's why it has so much passion in it. <clears throat> and of course, um, it, 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 it sort of kicks off the sort of fairly torturous process of um, expulsions but um, but ultimately I think people would would accept was uh, a, a war that was won um, and you know there have literally been books written about the the the, 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 the sort of campaign against militant um, in the Labour Party but again do, do you think that that fight although how it was necessary sort of robbed um, that first um, period of uh, the first parliament of the opportunity to make progress on actually speaking to the country? Uh, to an extent, yes, but it was the business that had to be done because if people formed a view of Labour which was based on their behaviour, and it wasn't just that by the way, it was also the so-called loony left local government, Ted Knight um, and so on, um, that was also behaving in an unacceptable way and the illegality question as well uh, as to what were the legitimate tactics to oppose what the Conservative government was enacting. Um, and those, that range of issues was constantly bubbling along. Of course, Labour has to deal with a um, right-wing national press in a way the Tories never have to deal with. Uh, but that meant that there wasn't any chance that you could kind of put out of sight these kind of problems and pretend that they weren't open to the country all the time. If people's first association with Labour was these pictures of unacceptable things being done, then there was no choice but to take it on and contest it. Mm. And, and moving on to sort of the 1987 election, in which um, obviously the party uh, did so a little bit better, but um, but but perhaps um, disappointingly uh, to some people, it, it is perhaps unheard of now in British politics that a leader would um, be able to have uh, more than one go at an election. Um, but you know, Neil has said that he knew right from the beginning that it was going to be, a, um, as he says, a two innings match um, and that it would take more than one one go. Um, it's very difficult in modern politics to imagine um, that uh, that happening. Um, but do you think his position was in danger after 87 um, or was there a general acceptance that um, it was an election that wasn't going to be won and that he had made progress? I, do, I think people certainly thought we'd made progress. I did a book called... Uh... British Labour leaders, in which I did a list of um, a table of where we'd gone in parliamentary seats at different elections. And Neil's record is very strong by comparison with almost all Labour leaders. And the uh, uh, because people did know that progress had been made, but obviously not enough. Um, I thought it was very unlikely we'd win the 1987 election. Um, 1992, I thought that we might secure a position where the Tories lost their overall majority. In fact, I thought that was likely, but I didn't think that was the case in 1987. Um, the only threat to Neil really came because he became 
very gloomy for a while about what uh, what it's all about because opposition is a very uh, exhausting job and he had to get himself out of that and get onto the front foot again but there was a period when he was really quite despairing about the overall state of affairs but he was able to overcome that and to be in a more positive position mm. um I mean, we can sort of pause there for a, for a moment on on that issue of of sort of personal um, characteristics. I mean, as you say, it's a really grueling and and um, difficult job to do. Um, and one of the things that um, I've spoken to a, a number of other people about is is how um, the way that a leader deals with the you know the incessant criticism and the real challenges for what seems to be no reward, how they they, they cope with that. Um, you say he was particularly down. Was that uncharacteristic of him during the during the sort of nine years that he was leader? Uh, I would say so. He he often got angry about things and was very passionate about things. But I wouldn't say he often was down. But I, I think in this period there was a year or so where he was uh, really had to fight fight his way through. Mm. Um, and then there was the more substantial policy review. Um, and um, without going into too much of the detail, we talked about um, nuclear disarmament. But I, I wondered about the um, the fact that, Neil, coming from the sort of the left of the party, there is this uh, charge that's leveled against him from the left uh, that, that um, you know, he, he betrayed his roots, that he was some kind of sellout and all this sort of thing. And, and he jokes about the fact that there is... Um, you know that he, he he sort of um, characterizes the the left's view of um, some of the uh, realistic decisions he had to take as being no compromise with the electorate and and sort of you know accusing him of electionitis this unhealthy um, uh, obsession with wanting to win votes and things um, but there is genuinely a, a a problem between how you decide between principles and what your party um, considers to be um, important uh, positions they don't want to abandon, and the needs of a, a party to win an election. That is a legitimate balancing act to have to to um, to weigh up. And and undoubtedly there will have been things during that policy review and that evolution of policy where he will have had to have compromised on things that he probably very much strongly believed in. Um, do you think that's a really difficult thing for a leader of a party in opposition to have to do, to understand that you cannot simply put to the electorate, um, as I think Danny Finkelstein um, said, sort of, you know, double, um, sort of, uh, you know, double down on what it is that you, you you want when someone sort of rejects it, to sort of go back to them and say, well, here it is, but there's twice as much of it. You have to actually listen to what people are saying. That's a really difficult thing for any politician to do, but in opposition, you know, it's, it's necessary. Well, it is, but there's a number of factors here. First is, what is a principled position? Um, is it a principled position that you um, want to run the electricity industry in a fair and efficient way? Or is it a principled position that it has to be in public ownership? And I think there's a lot of looseness around this question of what is the principle that one is defending in each of these policy issues as they come around. And uh, so that can make it easier to deal with the situation if you identify properly what the principle is that you're looking for. Secondly, time is important. Uh, one of the difficulties we had with Tony Benn's policy approaches was they all look backwards to 1945-51 Labour government as though the world in 19, uh, the 1980s 
was somehow similar to the world in the second half of the 1940s. Obviously, over that time, change has happened in very dramatic ways. Uh, and so the question is, are you going to come forward with policies which deal with the world as it is now and will be for the next 10 years? Or are you going to come up with policies which uh, uh, formed in the previ previous period? And a lot of the Labour policies came into that, uh, that picture where the circumstances had changed so much that the policies uh, weren't really very sensible. And that's why we started out with a massive opinion polling process going right through the policy positions, but also about how Britain had changed uh, and people's employment relationships, family relationships and so on had changed significantly over this period. And that created a climate um, but against which Tom's policy review could take place. And the central argument that said is, look at how it is now, not how it was then. And that's the second key element. First being, how do you define what a principle is? And then thirdly, um, the question of what you yourself believe is right for now. Uh, does, is that something which the party might not put forward? That can be difficult in different circumstances. And it's an acknowledgement of your political weakness in your party, as it were, that you can't carry your party to that kind of position. But I don't think it's, uh, and the fact you were a unilateralist, for example, and now are a multilateralist, is an is a argument about the most efficacious route to getting rid of nuclear weapons, not an argument about keeping nuclear weapons. What would be shocking would be to say nuclear weapons, uh, we are of the view that nuclear, I'm now of the view that nuclear weapons are necessary and we should keep them, uh, rather than getting rid of them in a different way, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, they're all, you're quite right, Nigel, these are all very difficult and problematic challenges that any leader of the opposition has to deal with. But at the end of the day, the difference between democratic politics is, and all the other forms is you are talking about winning political power. And that's why the no compromise with the electorate joke um, has resonance, because everybody knows that's what the, the political parties are about. That would be different if we were in a, um, a proportional representation system of government where you could have a set of views and get elected without, um, and then hope to form part of a government without going through the um, bilateral system that we have and having to change the nature of the coalition, which is your party in opposition. Uh, I don't think he found all of that very difficult, actually. I think what he found very difficult, he always found the behavior of Arthur Scargill and the miners, conduct, but what I said earlier, conduct issues are what he found really difficult. Mm. And just finally on, you talked about 1992 being very much the consensus that the Conservatives were likely to lose their majority, at least, if even if Labour didn't manage to win a majority themselves. And so the, the, the likelihood of uh, Labour being able to form some form of government was, was very real. Did you think going into election night that it was still all up for grabs or did you have an inkling that, that it wasn't going to happen? I thought going into election night, we would have to uh, form a coalition with others to be able to form, go into government. And I expected we would do that. We'd set up a whole set of, issue, of, of, of circumstances to deal with that. So we had, for example, uh, Merlin Reese was our back channel to the uh, Unionist parties in Northern Ireland. We had direct relations with the Lib Dems in, in so-called secret conversations and so on. Um, so we had a set of things to be activated 
in the event the conversations were necessary, which had already been established and agreed with the other parties. So that, that was the process. Secondly, uh, we knew that if it were a hung parliament, there'd be a big media contested view on it. So we'd asked um, a leading uh, historian of uh, politics in Britain to be ready to go on the media and to talk about the history of past circumstances in a way that would mean there wasn't just an agenda coming out from the other side. Uh, because there is controversy about what the right course of conduct in the event of a hung parliament is. So, uh, and there was a set of things of that kind. I didn't believe myself that we, we would not have a hung parliament until about five in the morning. We were coming back from South Wales. And, I, and we actually, if you look at the timings of it, lost quite a number of seats, about 25 or 30, by really quite small margins. And I'd been hoping those would go the other way. So it wasn't until really late, but I, I didn't think it kind of, you know, 11 p.m. on Thursday night that we had not succeeded in what we were going to need to do. In terms of preparing, I'd had a significant set of conversations with Robin Butler as cabinet secretary about the decisions which would need to be taken rapidly in the event that there were, that, that we were asked to form a government. And I briefed on the morning of the of Thursday morning of the election in his house in his constituency. I took him through all those various points. They're all fairly straightforward things, but issues he'd have to decide about 30 or 40 different things um, mm -hmm. very quickly so that he got his mind prepared. But he was very superstitious. He never would want to think about that well beforehand and because in, in case it was a tempting fate. Um, so that was what, how it was, and I was very disappointed. We were all very disappointed uh, that we didn't succeed in uh, going through that. It is interesting to, to note that, as you say, it was much later in the evening before it was known whether there would be a, a hung parliament or not. Um, and that's that's interesting because I think the um, I think the, the first uh, Conservative marginal of Basildon, I think, was was the one that everyone thinks was a bellwether. It's interesting to he to hear that actually if you go through election night and i might have to do that on um, iplayer when they next show it uh, to just sort of uh, see exactly how the, the wind was 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 blowing um, the, way I, the way i put it nigel is that it's all about information and voters vote not as a kind of lump and elements but they look at the situation in the case of 1992 they had had uh, levels of polling data from about a week before polling day, which coincided with the Sheffield rally, uh, where people started uh, thinking, well, Labour really might be in office, which they hadn't thought up to that point, but the opinion polls were suggesting we might be. So at that point, people start thinking differently and saying, well, do we really want Labour in office? And then a set of questions that emerged, which the two most difficult were economy and um, electoral reform, where we hadn't really got our positions as clearly thought out as we needed to have. But I contrast it with 1945. If we were, if we had 1945 levels of data about how people were voting in 1992, I think Labour would have won. If we'd had 1992 levels of data at the 1945 general election, I think there wouldn't have been such a large Attlee landslide as there was, because people didn't believe that they were getting rid of Churchill, if you know what I mean, mm. uh, in quite that way. So I think there's an important point about people's expectations and the way that they change their voting behaviour as their ex expectations of likely outcomes change. 
And I think that has some significant, if you take that view, it has some significant implications for the way of current voting and current general elections. Uh, I think it's the reason why Corbyn did relatively well, much better than people thought uh, in uh, 2017, was people thought he hadn't got a chance of being elected at all, so could easily vote for him. But by the time we got to 2019, they all thought, well, actually, he might be elected, and we don't want any of that. And I think that this question of the relationship between people's expectations and understanding of the country's voting behaviour and their own votes is insufficiently researched and understood. Mm. That's a as you as you hinted there. I think that's a, a, a very fertile um, area for for research about voter information on on the effects of their vote. I think that's absolutely absolutely right. And I just wonder if you had any final thoughts on. I mean, I, I've I've said this certainly to, in uh, interviews with um, with Neil himself when um, he's been quite self critical about his his role in um, failing to win in eighty seven and ninety two. And, and I've always put the, the counter case to him, which is to say that there is perhaps more uh, of a criteria for success as a leader of a major party than, than winning an election, strange as that might sound. Um, and if you look at the condition of the Labour Party in 1983 compared to its, its condition in 1992, uh, as you say, on the brink of taking power, there was a huge transformation which took place under his leadership. And in terms of what happened afterwards with John Smith and then um, Tony Blair, um, clearly there is a huge debt owed to the work that Neil Kinnock um, did and, and yourself and everyone else who, who supported and worked for him. Do you think that that is something which, which is sort of underappreciated, that there was, is a heavy lifting amount of work that had to be done to get to the point of even being in contention? And then being able to close the deal you know is is then a, another challenge but do, do you think he he is someone who is is owed a great deal more appreciation for those years well firstly i've never accepted neil's categorization of himself as having failed in any sense uh, i i got very angry with him about that because right at the beginning uh, after 92 he kept on going it's all him it's all him and all the rest of it which is partly a relatively noble desire to uh, take the burden of failure but actually I also think is untrue. Secondly, you ask whether I think other people appreciate it. I think lots of people do. I think Tony, uh, I, th I don't think John Smith did. John Smith didn't appreciate it. Um, I don't think John would ever have been elected prime minister myself. Uh, I know that's an unusual view, most people disagree with it. <clears throat> um, Tony did understand it to an extent because he understood about Neil being a modernizer and reformer but he didn't psychologically really ever accept it. Um, Neil had more politics in him than Tony ever had in terms of a party and so on. And um, I think that Tony doesn't really, really appreciate it in his heart. Um, he uh, doesn't quite get it. But I certainly believe that it would have been impossible to win in 97 if we hadn't done the work, if Neil hadn't done the work in 83 and 92. Charles Clark there, ending our discussion with his reflections on the debt that Tony Blair and New Labour owed to Neil Kinnock and the work that he did as leader of the opposition. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Opposition Cast. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, my thanks again to Charles Clark for speaking to us and also to Iman Abdulhaq, our research assistant, for her help with producing the podcast. Uh, we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another 
episode. In the meantime, do please recommend uh, us to those who might be finding it of interest. Uh, give us a good rating on uh, iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts from and uh, listen back to any episodes that you haven't already heard. If you're listening to this before Sunday, then enjoy the match. If you're listening to it after Sunday, enjoy the victory parade. Look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. It's presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our theme music is by Tom Hector, and you can find us online at oppositionstudies.net. It is now. It's I know that was then, but it could be again. 